Support for Life of Dogs is brought to you by Royal Canin. Royal Canin offers precise, effective nutrition for dogs based on size, age, breed, and to address specific needs. To learn more about Royal Canin, visit them on the web at royalcanin.com. And by Highland Canine Training, offering professional dog training solutions and premier canine education. Learn more at highlandcanine.com. I'm Jason Ferguson, and you're listening to A Life of Dogs, the podcast that explores our life with man's best friend and the amazing ways that we work and live together. You're listening to episode three of our second season. If this is your first time listening, be sure to check out our other episodes in our first and second seasons to hear some pretty amazing tales. Across the globe, it's estimated that between 150 and 200 species of plant, insect, bird, and mammal become extinct every 24 hours. In this episode, we discover the stories of some special people who are determined to save some interesting animals with the help of well-trained dogs. Many of these animals play a critical role in our ecosystem. Some plants can only be pollinated exclusively by bumblebees, a thing called buzz pollination where they vibrate vibrate at the perfect frequency for the plant to release its pollen. It's actually a really cool evolutionary thing they got going on with some plants. In 2017, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service added the rusty-patched bumblebee to the list of endangered species. Due to loss of habitat, diseases, climate change, pesticides, and parasites, bumblebee populations have dropped almost 90% in the last 20 years. Considering the fact that every third bite of food that we eat is attributed to pollinators, this is clearly a dire situation. Basically, alpine bumblebees are some of the only pollinators in the alpine area so they're a keystone species so without them like basically a keystone species means that a lot of ecological functions and stuff kind of rely on something that that species does like sharks are a keystone species in the ocean and so without these keystone pollinators the alpine ecosystem is completely going to change This episode begins with Jacqueline Staub, a 28-year-old grad student from Appalachian State University who's paired up with a young German short-haired pointer to help save the alpine bumblebee. So the alpine is kind of like a canary in a coal mine for climate change. Um, Things that are happening up there, it's happening drastically, like really quickly. And over the past 10 years, the number of bumblebee species in that area have gone from like two to three to five to seven and obviously well you don't know this but bumblebees are limited um, their populations are limited by the number of nest sites and we know bumblebees can't dig their own holes so they live in abandoned mammal burrows which is where darwin comes in but since they only have a limited number of resources and all these species are moving up in elevation are being able are able now to move up in elevation they're competing for those resources and this could drive certain species to extension change ranges change populations so it's really important that we need to know that also a lot of bumblebee in nesting ecology and biology information um getting that information has been hampered due to the inability to find bumblebee nests so the only two ways 
I did a literature um, search and the only two ways, three ways I found. So the first way was to just like systematically search yourself which I did one summer. Visually, and, just looking for them. Yeah, and yeah. I literally spent hours and hours and hours looking one summer, and I found three nests. And I was out there five days a week looking for nests. Pinpointing bumblebee nests can be incredibly difficult. They can consist of a tiny hole buried in the grass, recognized by a single bee going in or out every few minutes. To improve efficiency in finding these elusive sites, other strategies have to be used. So I looked um, into other ways and there have been other successful, like people had used volunteers where they all kind of like walk next to each other in a line and look for it. But if you're in the Alpine environment of Colorado, that's not safe. First of all, you're in Park County. You're not going to find that many volunteers that are going to stop mining or whatever they're doing day to day to go and help you find bumblebees. There just aren't that many people and they're all busy working. And so it's not like a college university town where you can just find all kinds of volunteers. But, um, so that wasn't going to happen. Uh, plus, the terrain's a little bit dangerous to have a bunch of unexperienced hikers. They're long days, long miles, and so we had to find another way. And so I ran across this paper in my research, um, Waters 2011 out of Great Britain, and they actually had the British Army train a dog for conservation, um, for bumblebee conservation to find bumblebee nests. It was a two-year-old Springer Spaniel that they found, and they trained him up to do it, and they tested him, tested the efficacy and stuff, and he did great. He found all five nests in like a 250 by 50 square meter plot. There was They had five of different species. So they found the dogs, um, the cues they use to find bumblebee nests are the same across species. So they're able to find, like Darwin has found in his training, he's been able to find um, nesting wax from um, Bombasin patients, commercial, um, Griseolis, and... He's able to find them from different species, which is really important and what we need. So that's really great. So at this point, you may be asking yourself, what makes someone want to go out and search for bumblebees that are known by most people for their painful stings? First of all, they're not scary at all. They're actually really cool and fuzzy and cute. Like if you're a dog person, you could totally be a bee person because they're fuzzy and wonderful. But um, yeah, they won't just sting you for no reason. I've only been stung twice, once because I exploded a paint pen on one of them. And the other one was actually under turgor, which means it was frozen. Basically, they go to sleep when they're really cold. So I was handling it and I basically stung myself. Like, and I handle these guys all the time. So they're actually really great. There are currently over 250 species of bumblebee. So what makes Jacqueline so interested in the alpine bumblebee? Alpine bumblebees specifically, um, they're different because they all live above 11,000 feet, which is really high. You know, there's a lot of spatial heterogeneity and just from place to place. It's windy. It's really the um, weather changes all the time. It's really hard for bees to live up there. So these bees have certain adaptations that, allow, that have allowed them to live up there. And so since they've been up there by themselves with the flowers, you know, for such a long time, they've developed really close relationships with these flowers as far as, far as pollination goes, you know. So they have, like, longer tongues. So flowers that require bees with longer tongues for pollination maybe won't get pollinated or could go extinct, you know. So that's really important. So basically, alpine bumblebees are some of the 
only pollinators in the alpine area, so they're a keystone species. In order to adequately survey the alpine bumblebee, researchers are required to locate their nesting sites. These nesting sites are becoming more sparse, which creates some pretty interesting behavior from the bees. Basically, they live in abandoned mammal burrows because they can't dig their own nests, but it's like a big fight. Like in the spring when the queens are competing, they'll actually like stab each other over nesting sites and try to usurp one another, kind of like Game of Thrones. But the bees, <laughs> they do. It's pretty intense. I first met Jacqueline at our facility in North Carolina, where she brought this lanky, German short-haired pointer puppy to be evaluated. She was on a mission, a mission to develop the first bumblebee detection dog in the Western Hemisphere. I got Darn as a puppy. Um, I decided to go with German short-haired pointers because I didn't know very much, and I read that they um, smelled close to the ground. They kept their nose low, so I was like, well, if I'm looking for bumblebee holes, might as well get one of those. Also, I've always kind of been into German short-haired pointers. Um, they're beautiful dogs. Anyway, so I got little Darwin from a breeder in Virginia, and I got him at eight weeks. He had good uh, hunting and championship lineage. I got him for the purpose of my research. As we found out, there are a lot of things you're going to need in order to train an effective bumblebee detection dog. A great dog and a proven plan are critical to make it work. But more importantly, you're going to need lots of bumblebees. I didn't really know what I was doing. It was my first bumblebee colony ever. I've had honeybees, so I was like, cool, I can do this, no problem. But it was too cold in Boone because I was doing it in the spring because I wanted to get the project underway. So I ordered them online. You can get them. I think it's Copert or something is the company, but you can order bumblebees online and they're shipped to you overnighted. And then <laughs> it's really funny. I get this like frantic email from the biology department. Uh, there are bees here. Somebody needs to come pick them up. <laughs> and I walked into the mailroom and they're just buzzing in the corner. <laughs> they're in a box, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, but anyway, so I brought them home. And you just open the door and let them go. There's like one exit entrance hole. They're basically coming in a box. And there's like one entrance exit hole. And you just, I just put them in my window with the entrance facing out. And just like block the rest of the window with towels. And yeah, but after a while, the hive starts getting big. That's the fun part. And um, they start to try to find ways out and increase their space. So they would start to like chew the air holes open on the boxes and you could just hear them like crunching it while you were sleeping. So that was really interesting. You're just waiting for them to like escape and sting you, but it was fine. I only got stung once. Did they escape? <laughs> yeah, totally. Sometimes I'd come home. <laughs> well, I have a great roommate, Paige Anderholm. She was my roommate at the time and <laughs> she would sometimes call me. Uh, well, at the beginning she would call me and be like, uh, Jacqueline? There are bees <laughs> everywhere. Can you come home? <laughs> like, yeah, I'll be right there. But eventually she got to the point where she would get in there when I had to get the nesting material. She'd get in there with me and handle it. So she really evolved as a <laughs> bee person. <laughs> what exactly attracts a dog to the nesting sites of bumblebees may come as a bit of a surprise to some. A key difference between the honeybee and the bumblebee is what aids in their conservation. 
honeybees are actually really neat and they usually poop and defecate outside their colonies you know but bumblebees stink they they smell so bad so that definitely helped darwin out in the beginning phases even though jacqueline and darwin's efforts are now focused in the rocky mountains of the united states she has plans to use darwin's unique skill set to help with bumblebee conservation elsewhere the plan with Darn eventually is to like do international bee conservation work. Like I want to go all over and help people with pollinator conservation because it's really important for the people too. Bumblebees are in drastic decline across North America and Europe. Studies suggest that bumblebee populations have declined 30% in the course of a single human generation. Climate change, among other factors, seems to be having a huge impact on bumblebee numbers making Jacqueline and Darwin's work more important now than ever. Actually now, because the time bees are emerging and the time certain plants are emerging in the alpine are super wonky now. Like, they're not as they were before. Like, and that's really important because um, in the Arctic, for example, um, Bombus frigidus, which is an alpine bee, they always emerge within 24 hours of this willow catkins, which is like a willow bush, their flowers blooming which is really interesting. So if the weather's all crazy and the plants aren't emerging at the right time, it could throw them off. And in that time when their colonies are so dependent, that first, like when they first are establishing, if their plants aren't now, like that colony's gonna go down. So it's really important. Like climate change could really have a lot of negative impacts on bumblebees, especially if the flower blooming timing keeps changing and stuff like that, like with strange weather patterns, like that could really, mess them up so that's why we want to get in there now and get an eye on them and the only way to do that really in this area is with Darwin. Up next we hear how dogs are being used to combat declining numbers in turtle populations and stay tuned to learn how scientists are using dogs to help save the koala, one of Australia's most iconic marsupials. Our next segment features Christian Fritz, a dog trainer and military veteran who founded Canines for Conservation after finding his calling to help sea turtles in Texas. We have sea turtle nest detection dogs uh, that we work down on the uh, Texas coast with uh, the National Seashore and the, and the University of Texas Marine Science Institute. Um, it's a pretty rare, rare field of uh, detection work at this point. Uh, as far as I know, there has been two other sea turtle nest detection dogs uh, prior to ours. With six out of the seven sea turtle species classified as threatened or endangered, caused primarily by human activity, it goes without saying that they need all the help they can get. Christian got involved in their conservation to some degree by accident. Um, so I, I initially started working, uh, doing search and rescue. Um, so I trained, uh, a human remains detection dog. Um, also trained her for tracking and then I trained uh, a live find dog. Um, so I had, you know, detection dogs. I had experience with detection dogs, um, doing, uh, search and rescue stuff and, uh, was trying to figure out what to do for my girlfriend's birthday, uh, last year. And she really liked sea turtles. And so I was trying to Google sea turtles in Texas to see if there's anything we could go to, you know, uh, um, 
uh, the National Seashore's website uh, where they talk about their sea turtle uh, their sea turtle program. They have a, a nesting program here. Um, and uh, I was reading, you know, I fell on the click hole. I was reading all the stuff about it. It was really interesting. And they were talking about they, they have uh, people that, that drive up and down the beach, that, that patrol the beach looking for nesting turtles. Um, and ideally, they will see the turtle uh, on the beach, and they can go over to the turtle. They can get measurements and check on her health, and they'll, they'll, they'll uh, actually mark the nest while she's still laying the eggs. Uh, and then they move back, let her finish laying the eggs, and then she crawls back into the ocean. And later on, they'll come out and they'll actually collect the eggs. Because um, in Texas, they collect the eggs. Um, they're, they're, there's few enough of the nests, and there's enough um, threats from tides, predators, and also from people, because you can drive on a lot of the beaches down here, that they actually collect the eggs and they either re-nest them in protected corrals, or they have an incubation facility at the National Seashore. Um, so they collect those eggs and they, and they move them. But sometimes they're not there when the turtle is nesting. Um, a lot of times they'll be driving by and they'll see uh, tracks in the wet sand. And the, the turtles that they're specifically dealing with are Kemp's Ridleys, which are the smallest sea turtle in the world. Um, they're still about 100 pounds. They're not little turtles, but for sea turtles, they're little. Um, and they like the nest when it's windy. So the combination of high winds and... Um, Small turtles means that the, the tracks they leave in the dry sand can be completely gone in 30 or 40 minutes. So the turtle crawls up, she lays her eggs, she goes back in the ocean, and 30 minutes later you drive by and you might see some, some, some uh, flipper prints in that wet sand. So you know a turtle crawled up and you know the turtle crawled back into the ocean, but you don't know where on the beach that turtle went. You know, she could have laid her eggs the second she got off the wet sand, she could have crawled you know, a uh, hundred feet back and laid her eggs. You just, you really have no idea. You know, did she turn? Did she, I don't know. Um, and so at that point, uh, when they, when they, when they don't have any tracks, they employ a lot of, um, a lot of different methods to try to guess where the turtle laid her eggs, you know, well, they often lay them in these areas or in this kind of sand. Um, they're looking for broken vegetation or places where, you know, sand is, um, uh, loose sand is piled up, you know, on, on some um, vegetation where the turtle was fleeing sand in the air. So they're trying to get every little thing they can, and then they basically take their best guess, and they have to go probe for this probe for the nest. So they take these probes and they carefully insert them. They have years of training to be able to do this. They carefully insert them in the sand, and it's like looking for a landmine, you know, very very carefully, very, you know, go, going through the area until they find this soft spot that's about eight inches across. Uh, and it's the, it'll be the neck of the, of, the, of the nest. And then they can dig it out. Um, the problem is that can take them, you know, a couple of minutes. I've seen them. I personally, it was pretty amazing. Witnessed, you know, one of, the, um, one of their turtle techs come out and look and go, I'm pretty sure the nest is right over there. And I, I, I'm looking at it, and I'm like, there's nothing on this beach that tells me anything. And he walked over, and I think on the fourth poke, he got it. Um, so, I mean, these guys are really good, but there are, there are times when they, they don't find them for hours, days, and sometimes they never find them. Um, and so I, I was, you know, reading about probing the net, probing for nests for hours. And I was like, man, I bet they could use dogs for this. And so that's when I sent, uh, an email in and Dr. Shaver replied to me. Um, and she said, you know, Hey, you know, we don't have this capability anymore. And so I said, well, do you want that capability? And she was like, well, 
know, fifty thousand dollars for a specialized dog. And so I offered to um, to do it as a nonprofit. You know, we could train the dog and handle the dogs for them, and then they don't have to even worry about it. We're just there to help them out. Um, and I went down. I drove down to the beach. I met with Dr. Shaver. Um, we talked for a number of hours, and I went home and started training dogs that day. As you heard in our previous story, Jacqueline was able to simply purchase bumblebees to train Darwin. In Christian's endeavors to help save the sea turtles, getting the material he needs to train the dogs is difficult. Yeah, so uh, what we use is um, sand from the nest. So once the, um, the, you know, the, the, the turtle patrollers will see a turtle, they'll mark the nest, they, uh, they come by later on and they collect all the eggs, and at that point, you know, it's, it's just a, a hole in the, in the beach. And so we'll scrape some of the sand out of, um, out of the area where the nest was. And that's what we use to train the dogs. So they're getting the smells of the turtle nest without actually having to have any turtle stuff, um, which is controlled because they're, they're endangered species. Because one of the problems that we have with using the, the sand is that I don't know how much scent is in any given scoop of sand. So um, I don't. I, I, it's, it's impossible for me to say... I'm going to start big and work down to minute amounts of smell because I, I don't know how much smell I have. I can't smell it, you know. Um, there's, there's no way to, to look at it and see. And so I just have to assume, essentially, that the scent is evenly distributed throughout the sample, even though I know that it's not. Um, and so that's one of the big um, factors that's kind of, you know, holding me back at this point, um, training-wise. I wish that exceptions were easier, but at the same time, I understand why they're not. Um, you know, there's there's probably a lot more people trying to steal sea turtle eggs than are trying to train dogs to help help you know help the government find them and protect them. So I get it. Um, I do wish that it was otherwise, but unfortunately, that's kind of you know where we're at. So, in his quest to preserve the sea turtle population, Christian trained with his dogs every day for months prior to actually exposing them to nesting sites on the beach. His work required lots of travel and tons of hard work. Um, we did daily training. Um, I live in San Marcos, uh, right between San Antonio and Austin, and we did daily training up here for about two months. And um, every two or three weeks, we'd go down to the beach and we'd practice on the beach and we would get to practice on, um, on real nests. So we would go out uh, on days that we expected high nesting activity and the, the, the turtle patrols would mark a nest and we would come by and I'd work the dogs on known locations. So I know where there's a nest here, I know where the nest is, and I can work the dogs on it. Um, and they were doing really well. Uh, I have some, some cool videos um, on the uh, Facebook and uh, in our Instagram page of the dogs working some of those nests. Um, there's, you know, a great one where Saul's coming up the dune and he has this really, really great, like, probably 140 degree change of behavior where he snaps almost right back to where he was going as he came into the scent cone, works the scent cone perfectly, um, goes right up to the nest and indicates. It was just a, a really great example of, uh, of, a, of a detection dog working. Um, but So we trained him up like that for a while, and then July I spent uh, working the dogs only on the beach, so we worked a lot on the beach. After putting in lots of work to find sea turtle nests, Christian and his dogs finally got the call that they'd been waiting for. It was now time to see if all this work would pay off. We got a call from the uh, Marine Science Institute 
the Animal Rehabilitation Keep uh, does runs their, their turtle patrol for a Mustang in San Jose Island. And they had found tracks from a loggerhead turtle on Mustang Island, uh, or not Mustang, it was on San Jose Island. Um, and they'd gone out the day before and they spent, you know, four or five or six hours looking for this nest and they just couldn't find it. They probed and they dug and they dug and they probed and they couldn't find it. Um, so they called me up. They're like, "Hey, can you come out?" And I was like, "Yeah, absolutely." You know, this is this is literally what I've been spending these you know hundreds and hundreds of hours you know training to do. Yes, please, you know, let me come help. Uh, so we had to take a boat out to the uh, to the island because there's no um, there's no road that goes out. There. It's a privately owned island, um, and the uh, the owners you know graciously allow the uh, Marine Science Institute to come out and look for turtles and collect eggs. Uh, on their property, which is really nice of them. Um, but so we brought the dog out, we brought Dasha out, um, you know, on the boat, and then we had to take, you know, a little UTV halfway across the island to where these turtle nests, where the turtle tracks were. And um, I let Dasha out, she started working, and very, very early on, she, she crossed right by this one spot, she head checked um, into a clump of grass. And I was like, you know, I, I noted that to myself, I was like, okay, that was a really good head check. Like, that was you know, that was, that was definitely some interest. And this is, I mean, we're dealing with some really, really faint smell, you know, um, it, it's, it's really tough work. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's not a lot of scent for them to work with. So, um, she checked that worked some more. And a couple of minutes later, she started working from, um, from downwind, she started working towards that same area. And, um, after working through that for a little while, she finally got just about to where she had checked in that first, uh, grass indicated and that was right there um, it was about from, from where she very first had that head check it was probably three feet away um, and uh, yeah so she was able to, to, to go in um, found the right spot indicated and the um, the biologist that was out with us was able to probe and find the eggs and then we got to you know bring the eggs in it was like 110 um, loggerhead sea turtle eggs, which are, you know, loggerheads are endangered species. So that was, you know, a nest that we got to, to help save uh, that otherwise probably would have been predated. That was pretty cool. It's not only nests and eggs that are in danger. Weather in the winter months can also create a perilous situation for sea turtles. So Christian and his team of dogs are working on strategies to save sea turtles affected by cooler temperatures on the Texas coast. So there's another thing that, that happens with these, with not the camps really so much, at least not here in Texas. We have these these uh, our barrier islands that go basically along the entire uh, coast, and in, in inland of the barrier islands is um, uh, are these bays that are relatively shallow, and the uh, juvenile green sea turtles like to go hang out in those because there's a lot of food there, and they're safer from predators. There's not a lot of 14 foot sharks swimming around in you know 12 feet of water. Um, and so the, uh, the, the the green sea turtles, the juvenile greens, will swim in there, and they live there. The problem is when we have a really big um, temperature change, so we have these big Arctic uh, fronts come through from Canada, and it'll drop the, uh, the water temperature because it's so shallow in the bay from 70 degrees to 45 degrees, uh, sometimes overnight, but, you know, certainly in a matter of, of a day or two. And... Um, that drastic uh, temperature change doesn't allow the uh, juvenile greens enough time 
to swim back out to uh, the Gulf of Mexico because there's only you know, very few places where there's uh, you know cuts in the islands where they can where they can get through. Um, and so what happens is the turtles get hypothermic. They call them cold stunning. So the turtles get cold stunned um, well, at about 40, 48 degrees water temperature, and they can't move. So they're just kind of floating in the water, and the wind pushes them up along the shore, and they get washed up onto the beach. Um, so they're vulnerable to getting hit by boats because they can't swim out of the way, and they're floating on the surface. Um, they can drown because they can't, they, they can't even have the energy to lift their head out of the water to breathe. Um, and when they wash up on shore, uh, I mean, they can also freeze to death. And then when they wash up on shore, um, anything can just come along and eat them. Like, they, they can't get away. There's nothing they can do. They're just stuck there on the beach. Um, and so one of the things that, that, we're, that we're trying to um, train the dogs to do is actually to go out and help find those turtles. In fact, last Wednesday, uh, I went down and, and helped um, helped save some of the uh, some some cold stun greens. Um, and there was just you know you walk out on the beach and you're like, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one. You know, there's lined up along the beach. Um, but there's other places where you know it's really it's like a a mud island. It's only you know an inch off, an inch out of the water. And you know, you, you jump in and you sink up to your knees in mud and you got to slog across this island to see if there's any turtles. If there's bubbles or grass, um, you know, these are all things that the dogs, or that, that people, you know, aren't going to be able to detect a turtle in, right? If there's, you know, a, bu- a bunch of bubbles, um, you, you might not be able to see a turtle inside that. Well, the dogs aren't looking, they're smelling. So if the dog picks up the scent, they're going to be able to go in. Plus, my dogs love it in the cold and the mud. <laughs> so, you know, you throw, them out of, you, you throw them out of the boat into, you know, knee-deep mud and it's 40 degrees outside, and they're going to have the time of their lives. They love that stuff. Uh, so they can go cover an island, you know, and if they detect a turtle, well, we can bring the boat around, swing by, jump back at the turtle and bring it back. If there's no turtle, we put the dog on the boat and go to the next island and not have to get off ourselves and, you know, try to slog around through this island. So, Training dogs to save sea turtles is phenomenal work. But as Christian explains, his work has some other pretty cool perks. Getting to watch the turtles come up on the beach and lay their eggs is really, really, really cool. Um, I, the whole first year, I kept missing it. I would, I would drive up right after the turtle went back into the water, just again and again. This past summer, um, I was actually the first one there on a couple of turtles. Um, and we had one, one day we had a small rainstorm and we had four turtles crawl up within a mile of each other. Um, and all right about the same time. Um, so getting to see the turtles come up and stuff is really cool, but I think probably the coolest thing is watching the babies go into the ocean. Um, that's just, I mean, there's, there's, there's hundreds of them. They're adorable, you know, they're, they're running off of the ocean. They hit that water and they just start swimming, and it's, they're, they're really, really cute. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the coolest things to watch is those little babies, you know, hit the water and swim for the first time. Be sure to stay with us as our episode continues. When we return, we head to Australia and learn how a dog named Bear is helping save animals that are often mistaken for bears. Support for A Life of Dogs is brought to you by Royal Canin. Royal Canin delivers precise, nutritional solutions so your dog can perform at their very best level. To achieve a perfect balance of nutrients for each dog, they rely on an extensive network of canine experts across the globe 
including veterinarians, universities, dog professionals, and their own research and development center in France. Royal Canin helps your dogs train and perform at their full potential. To learn more about Royal Canin, visit them on the web at royalcanin.com. And by Highland Canine Training. Highland Canine Training is one of the largest and most respected professional dog training companies in the southeastern United States. Founded in 2006, Highland Canine Training offers quality working dogs to meet the increasingly demanding requirements of today's military and law enforcement agencies. They also offer first-class canine education programs at their school for dog trainers. So far, they've hosted students from over 30 different countries. The school for dog trainers offers affordable financing and accepts GI Bill and VA benefits. The service dog training division at Highland Canine Training develops and trains some of the best service dogs in the industry and offers worldwide delivery. Their commitment to customer service and support continues to set them apart from the competition and makes them a leader in the industry. Visit HighlandCanine.com or call 866-200-2207 to learn more and see the difference. Bushfire crisis has had a huge impact on South Australia's wildlife. Tens of thousands of koalas and kangaroos killed and grave concerns about the survival of some of our unique species. The Army and volunteers... My name is Dr. Roman Christescu. I'm a research fellow at the University of the Sunshine Coast and I created a special team that trains dogs to look for koala and koala habitat and we are called Detection Dog for Conservation and we in a little part of Australia um, called the Sunshine Coast. It's um, in Queensland, and we work all around New South Wales and Queensland, uh, where koala are vulnerable. Dr. Christesco has studied koalas for years. Her dedication to the species led her to crawling around on her hands and knees in the Australian bush for months at a time looking for koala scat. A critical piece of information that provides insight into the current state of the koala population. After years of collecting scat on her hands and knees, she felt that there had to be a better way. Suddenly, she was struck by the idea of training a dog for the job. She presented her idea and was quickly laughed at and ridiculed until she met a dog trainer who felt that the concept was valid. With some help, she developed and began to work her first koala scat detection dog. Soon thereafter, she was able to prove that the dog was a better option for the koala population. We just could, we can't do that with threatened species. We need to be better at it. And so we published that work um, and we started talking to government and we started talking to researchers and to university to say, look, the current method is not, not that great and you need more accuracy in your surveys because otherwise you're going to make the wrong decision for this endangered animal. And um, yeah, this is how it all started. And after after that survey and after that comparison between Maya, my my first cat detection dog, and the human team, I was never going to go back to look for scats myself. Um, the the difference is just too big. We need we need to work with detection dog in ecology much more than we are currently. This idea took off, and now she has a number of dogs in the field helping with her conservation work. So yeah, four of our dogs are trained on scats, two on every scat, young one, 
old one, year old one, it's all good, it's to map habitat, and the other two are trained on fresh scats only, so they ignored everything that is more than a week or two old, and they only take us to the freshest of the freshest cats. And then we have bear, um, who is on our all only dog that is trained on the koala itself, the animal. And the training was so different. Um, the same training on scats is so easy. <laughs> like Dogs are excellent. I, I mean, if you have a dog at home, they're probably really good at sniffing poo, right? Um, so that's the easy part. They really um, they sniff it in their routine, daily life anyway. So you just have to introduce that special poo, the koala poo, and tell them, yeah, when you sniff that, that's when we're going to play. And so the training for us, and that's, that goes back to the, the old dog being OCD for play, is just a very simple association learning. So there's a target scent you want, and for us it was koala cats. And there's a reward that the dog wants. And for all our dog, it's playing. And so you just associate those two things. And dogs are obviously extremely intelligent. So that association happens in only a few days. And very quickly they understand that each time they smell that, they're going to get to play, and therefore they really, really actively search for that scent. Um, and then when they find it, it's right there in front of their nose. We, we, we tell them to drop to get rewarded, and so that's an easy thing to teach as well. And then we have a detection dog for that scent. Now, because they are conservation dogs, we then have a lot of work around them not chasing wildlife, reinforcement, testing. Considering the specialized work that is required and the environment that these teams have to work in, where does one find such special dogs for this amazing job? We often say that it's one in a million, and maybe it's exaggerating, but not that much. It's really hard to find the perfect dog for this job because they need to be ball-obsessed and want to chase small fluffy, quickly moving tennis ball, but at the same time we ask them to not want to chase small, fluffy little rabbits or possums um, that would run in front of them when we're in the bush. Because they are conservation dogs, they actually are deployed in national park and really beautiful environment. And we've got, you know, a duty of care for all the animals uh, that live in that environment. And so we look for the dog that has a very high play drive, wants to play all day with us because that's the motivation, that's, that's the reason why they are so happy to be with us. But at the same time, we're asking those dogs to not want to prey on any of the animals that are working or that are living in the environment we work. So it's a very difficult trait to have both that high play drive but very low prey drive and never wanting to chase any wildlife. Um, and so it's lucky for us that we are able to assess a lot of dogs in pounds because um, it's very rare for us to find the right dog. Dr. Christesco goes on to explain that the dog they're often looking for is one that many people wouldn't be interested in. It's an interesting process, but we select the dogs that are probably the people's worst nightmare. They are high energy, they are totally obsessed by playing, they will not leave you alone uh, days or nights because they want to play more than anything. They want to play more than they want to be patted or that they want food, for, ex for example. Um, so we actually go and rescue them. They're often abandoned because they are too much as a, as a pet. Um, and so we, we go to pounds and, and dog rescue groups and we ask them for their most crazy dogs. 
um, the dogs that will never stop, that wants to run all day. And that's the dog we want, um, which is good for the dog because um, obviously um, that gives them a second chance at being who they really are. And the reason we want the craziest dog possible is that this is a way for us of um, forming a, a relationship where the dogs get what they want out of it as much as we do. So they want to play all day. We want to collect ecological data all day. And so it's a perfect match because each time they find what we want, they get to play, and therefore they want to go to play every day. I often say, even though they are classified as working dogs, all dogs are playing dogs. They only come with us because they want to play with us. Um, each day that we don't go in the field, and that sometimes happens on weekends, rarely, <laughs> um, but they're very disappointed. They hate holidays and they hate Sundays if we don't go to work because they find it very boring. So this is what we look for, um, a personality, really, that is, um, we call them OCD, if you want, um, just op that obsession for playing is what we look first and foremost. Training scat detection dogs to survey the koalas was something that the team got really good at. But in time, they felt as though they needed something more. The koala is an elusive creature, spending most of their time sleeping or hiding in trees. Because of this behavior, the group took on the challenge of training Bear, a task that would prove not to be as simple as the dogs before him. But, you know, the sad part of this scat detection dog um, line of work, if you want, is really easy. When it comes to Bear, who was trained to to indicate on koala, on the animal itself, that was actually extremely hard and that took us a long time to really nail it and narrow down what it is that we want him to find because we didn't want him to find the urine or we didn't want him to find the scats because we knew everywhere there would be a koala, there would be urine and there would be scats. So we would be wasting a lot of time on those two orders that are always present no matter where we are able to find a koala, right? Because that's their environment, that's where they poop, and that's where they pee. So we actually use those odor as um, odor to be trained not to indicate on. Um, so those were or negative odor, if you want, non-target odor. We didn't um, train bear to indicate on those odor. But we always had fur in the lineup, and so we first we trained him with fur. Um, it was quite an interesting process because obviously you have to collect fur, <laughs> which is not as easy as collecting scats. Um, so we had to work with vet and koala hospital who um, very nicely donated all their fur to us. Um, and then we had line up between fur from koala and fur from other animals to really teach bear this is the animal we want. Um, and all of that was still really easy because we had collected the fur. We can put it on the ground. He can go straight to the source of the odor, and you can rewind. Um, obviously, the hardest part, part was to actually, you know, graduating from fur on the ground to an animal, a live animal in the tree. Um, and so we did a lot of um, working in parallel with people that had koala, um, that knew where koala had walked, and training bear to, to send the track. Um, and then we did um, a lot of work with people that had animals that were wearing collar because it's easy for me to go around and drop koala scats and train the and test the dogs on the scats, but I don't have a koala in my pocket, so I couldn't easily just drop a koala in the environment and then teach bear where the koala was. Um, 
So the training and the testing of there was much harder and involved a lot more partners because we needed people that had koala wearing radio tracking collar so that they could know every day where the koala were and so we could then test there on those koala. So it was a very long process uh, and much, much more difficult and a very different training at the end than the, than the scat detection dog. Bear's job is substantially more difficult than the other dogs on his team. The location in which the koalas live and their elusive behavior makes his job quite challenging. This often leaves Bear slightly frustrated with his handler. If you can imagine a koala up to 10, 20, 50 meter in a tree, and Bear is straight on their scent. So he's on the ground, he's not climbing trees, obviously. So he needs to tell us where on the ground is the strongest scent of koala. And so sometimes if there's no wind and the conditions are great, um, the scent just trickles down and um, Bear can find the scent at the bottom of the tree. But sometimes the scent is actually quite far from the tree. Um, so he's definitely got this, the hardest job of all our dogs. All the dogs are actually sniffing things on the ground that are koala droppings. So they've got the easy life there. So we both train Bear on air scenting, so scenting the, the smell of the koala that trickle down from the tree, but also on tracking. Um, when koala move from tree to tree, they leave a track, um, and so dogs are really good at, um, at following tracks. So he's also doing that and trying to switch from one to the other and, um, and get us as close as possible to the koala that he can. And then when he's pretty confident that um, he's as close as can be, he drops. Um, so we actually train him to not bark uh, because we don't want to be frightening the koala, obviously. Um, so he's very quiet and he just drops and stays there and waits for us to actually see the koala. And poor bear has to work with a team of humans and we often let him down because koala are just so hard to spot in trees. Even though they are quite a big um, arboreal animal, they're very quiet um, they don't tell you they're there. They're often sleeping, but sometimes they're looking at you and they see where you are. And they quietly go around the trunk to hide from you because they don't want you to find them. Um, so, yeah, we always have a very tough job. And we can only um, reward a bear if we see the koala because um, this is part of the training. They get to play with, um, with their toy when they, when they found their odor. Um, so Bear sometimes gets a bit frustrated at us for not being quick enough in our task when he's done such a good job. <laughs> Over the years, I've learned from my Australian friends that koalas are not to be called koala bears, as many Americans make the mistake of doing. As such, I found it ironic a dog trained to find koalas would be named Bear. So I didn't want to miss the opportunity to learn about the origin of Bear's name. It's funny that bear is called bear because it is true that a lot of um, people call koala koala bear, even though obviously they are very, very far from bears um, in that tree of life that I was talking about. Um, they're marsupial, so very far from, from bears. Um, but the funny thing is that this is just a coincidence because we rescue all our dogs, um, and when we're lucky, they come with a history and they come with a name. And that was the case for Bear. So we didn't have to name him because um, we actually had a bit of his history and we knew um, that he was already, you know, called Bear. And so we kept his name out of respect for him. Um, and yeah, apparently he originally was called Panda and then became Panda Bear. 
And by the time he reached us, because he was rescued and abandoned a few times before we got him, um, yeah, by the time he reached us, he was there, which is, yeah, a funny coincidence. Australia is often known for being the home of some of the deadliest animals on the planet. In order to find a creature as cuddly as the koala, Roman and her team have to work in an environment that provides some considerable challenges. It's obviously some times of the year a little bit hot, um, so that's one of the things that we have to be careful with our dog, um, is to, to be mindful of how quickly we can get really hot, and that's also true for the handler. Um, but they are beautiful, often um, eucalyptus forest that we work in, and um, we ecologists, we actually love being there, but a lot of people have told us how scared they are to walk into this forest because, well, Australia is famous for snakes, right? And it's got some of the most venomous snake in the world. Um, so we have to be careful of that. And, um, you know, there's no zero risk. Um, but all of our dogs ignore snakes. Um, they're not um, obviously going to chase them, so that decreases a little bit. Um, the risk and then we also train them on very good commands so if we see a snake we can stop the dog in its track and then um, and react to that um, but yeah we, we do have to be a little bit cautious of that uh, for sure and then the last thing people tell us is that oh but the, the bush is very dense it's very scratchy it's very hard work um, but I think both the dogs and us are just loving that environment uh, put us in the middle of a big city and that would be a different um, response, but put us in a big forest, and we're quite happy. <laughs> Even though the work for both the dogs and humans is hard, Roman explains that it also comes with some substantial rewards. It's just every day, you know, that you get to spend in the nat- nature, in nature and the natural environment is very special, and I think. Often I just stopped and I'm here and surrounded by beautiful old trees and there's a dog running around at my feet and you just stop and you wonder how lucky one can be (laughs) and and you wish that more people could spend more time in the bush because, you know, this is what sustains us, I think, Um, the beauty of nature, the beauty of, you know, the flora around us and when we're lucky because wildlife does want to hide from us because we are the top predator really but when we're lucky and we see some wildlife whether it's a lizard or a bird or when we extra lucky a koala in a tree um, we're just reminded how little we are and how much more important the natural ecosystem is um, which we are part of but we sometimes remove ourselves from and I think it's um, it's not good for humans to be far removed from the ecosystem that sustains their life, um, both because of its beauty that we shouldn't forget, but also because we really must be aware that um, we need to protect um, that life support system, otherwise uh, we'll be in a lot of trouble. Just a reminder of how beautiful nature is and, and that we need to stand up and protect it. This is the time. The work of these conservation teams is more important now than ever. With koala numbers in decline over the past several decades, the recent wildfires in Australia have only increased the need to save the koala. It's estimated that more than a thousand koalas have been killed in these fires, 
not to mention the loss of their precious habitat and food sources. So koalas have a wide distribution in terms of area they can live, but they are actually limited um, to the coastal area. That's their primary, if you want, uh, higher density. You can call it koala hotspot if you wanted to. And um, sadly, this is also where humans um, love to live, coastal area, but also those are the most fertile area in terms of agriculture. So, you know, for quite a long time now, we've been in direct competition with each other, and humans tend to win, obviously. Um, so that, that, that's the basic, you know, of where Corona lives. And then those fires came this year, and they are more intense, um, you know, than all, almost any fire that we had since record time, um, since we had recorded fires. And um, they're also hotter, and they're also outside of the normal fire season. So those fires are unusual. And obviously, um, I'm not a climate scientist, but um, climate science. Um, so those fire, people call them mega fire now, are unusual. And um, even though I'm not a climate scientist, I read enough paper and I talk to enough climate scientists that those fire are um, out of the norm because of climate change. And so. It's not a good news for koala because the area that have burned, especially this year, are in what we call prime koala habitat. They are in that big coastal fringe um, in New South Wales in particular and, uh, and in Queensland. And um, if you look at a map of where koala like to live and where those fires have been, it, it's a very good overlap, um, which is obviously adding um, to all the stress that koala already have to cope with. And in the changing climate, um, the koala are not going to cook very well. They are, you know, it is, climate change is one of the threats listed um, under the IUCN classification, and for good reason. First, because as we've seen, you know, there's a direct induced death by fire, um, which is terrible and has um, hit really big, well-known koala population where hundreds have feared to have been lost in the fire. So that's the direct, very visible impact. Maybe as direct, but maybe not as visible is the threat of heat waves. Koala are not really good with cooking with very um, many hot days in a row, if you want. They've always lived with some hot days, but many in a row, um, it's very difficult for them to regulate their temperature. And so they are actually dying of overheating which is terrible and has potentially impacted a lot more population than we've seen because it's a bit harder to detect um, if you're not there in the forest as it happens. And then there's threat that maybe we don't quite understand yet, but this, these are the threat of the impact of increased CO2 in the atmosphere on the plant growth. How are the plants going to grow and how much toxin are, gonna, are they, those plants going to produce? And also, you know, plants you know, move as quickly um, their distribution to adapt to new climate conditions. So maybe some of the food trees that koala use are actually not going to be um, able to adapt quickly enough to climate change. So maybe just basically the trees that koala need are not going to be there anymore um, where koala need them. So all those things are a bit more uncertain, but we know that with all those different impacts, climate change is not 
not um, going to be the good news for Koala. And basically, it's adding to the many heavy threats that Koala are already struggling uh, with. You know, every species deserves <laughs> that we fight for them um, in this climate. But, um, but yeah, Koala have a special place in my heart for sure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of A Life of Dogs. Be sure to head over to our website at alifeofdogs.com for some great bonus content and to learn how you can support these remarkable conservation teams in the work that they do. A special thanks goes out to Jacqueline Staub, Christian Fritz, and Dr. Roman Christisco for helping us bring you their unique stories. This episode was produced by Jason Ferguson and Abby Trogdon. I hope you've enjoyed the stories. Don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast, and be sure to leave us a review.